There has been a lot written about food deserts in areas not served by regular grocery stores. Often the grocery stores were not economically viable, leaving people unserved. Ken Cobb has studied the so-called food food deserts and has talked to the people who live there. His ideas and findings are remarkable. It's on tip of the tongue. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Kenneth Cobb. He's a professor of sociology at Furman University and is the author of the James Beard nominated and ASFS award-winning book, Retail Inequality, Reframing the Food Desert Debate. Welcome, Ken. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is really exciting. So I, I want to tell you, I really love the fact that the book was really personal. And I thought that that made it a lot more readable. And I felt that I was going on this journey of discovery with you, which was much different than most kind of academic books that I've read and it made it a lot more readable and um, also I liked the idea this is just on a, a personal level I really liked the idea of busting a myth kind of thing that was <laughs> kind of nice so why don't you tell us a little bit about what brought you to write the book well I you know born and raised in New Orleans obviously uh, I love food Uh, It's a big part of my life. Also, in my uh, mid-20s, I joined the Peace Corps, and I was in uh, Paraguay, where I lived on a small farm, uh, raised pigs and chickens and vegetables and stuff like that. So access to food is an important issue to me. uh, But what really made the book happen was these neighborhoods that I had been working with in Greenville, South Carolina. That's where Furman University is. That's where I live now. I had been helping them with a a couple of policy issues to help them improve their neighborhood. And I was just asking them, you know, what is it that, uh, what is it that you need? What is, what is, what is the problem you most want to solve? And the the most uniform answer was we want a grocery store. They had lost a grocery store and they could see that on the other side of town, grocery stores were popping up, but they were closing on their side of town. And at the time, uh, this was around 2013, 2014, the the term food desert had really been a part of the political discourse for about four or five years at that point. You know, it's it's kind of strange to think that this kind of wonky concept was actually coined in Scotland in the mid 90s, made its way into some bureaucratic department, Ministry of Health report. And eventually, 15 years later, uh, presidential candidates are talking about it during debates, which is is quite rare for many academic concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was really intrigued by how they had latched onto this concept, how they were able to use it to really get politicians to listen to them when in the past they had often felt ignored. And so it was sort of the confluence of, of my interest in food in general and these neighborhoods' interest in, in trying to improve their community in a very specific way that they just felt powerless 
against these larger market forces to, to make any sort of positive change. So why was it important for them to have a grocery store in their neighborhood? Well, it, there's two stories, okay? So in public, in public meetings, um, they were quick to latch on to some kind of powerful political talking points of their lack of access to fresh fruits and vegetables had really negative health implications for their community. There's correlations with areas without grocery stores and high rates of obesity, hypertension, diabetes, and all sorts of other diet-related poor health outcomes. And, and so they knew or they had gotten this sense um, that if they said these kinds of things in public, that uh, political figures just had to listen. They had to, they had to do something. They had to subsidize new stores. They had to, to try and recruit businesses to come and open up stores on their side of town. But privately, I, I did about 100 hours of interviews with people at their kitchen tables on their front porches. And I asked them pretty personal questions about how and why and where they eat the food that they do. We'd look into their cabinets and cupboards and stuff like that. And you'd think that people would be really reluctant to do this, but food is kind of a uni universal topic. Everyone loves to talk about food. You know, in New Orleans, you're always eating a meal. And during the meal, you're talking about what's the next meal you're going to eat. And right. so uh, the... Uh, so these neighborhoods and the folks, you know, I would, I'd share with them some of my less stellar dietary practices and my, <laughs> my sweet tooth and whatnot. And so we'd kind of have a fun conversation and I'd come to learn that they ate meals just like everybody else, you know, and they were, they were, they were facing time crunches. So it was hard to come home after work and, and cook elaborate meals from scratch. They were eating a lot of meals out. They were eating fast food. They were just they had, you know, Americans as a whole don't have the greatest diets in the world. And so they were no different, but they're, they're in private. What they really were upset about is that they just felt like their side of town was inundated with what they call really bad retail. So this is liquor stores, pawn shops, payday lenders. These are the kinds of places that, you know, lousy convenience stores that, you know, largely profited off of selling beer and lottery tickets and stuff like that. And they didn't like it. And they wanted nicer retail options, just like they had on the other side of town, even though they may not have had the buying capacity to, to shop at those kinds of stores all the time. They just wanted a better variety. They wanted a better mix. They wanted better retail. And so, uh, but that's, that's kind of a complicated argument to make in public at like, you know, if you're at a city council meeting and you've only got two minutes to talk. So they really understood that if, they said something like, we, we need a grocery store to improve the health of our community so we can feed our children healthier meals. That's a very powerful tool. It was a lever. And, right. and so that's, that, that's kind of, the, they wanted both. I mean, they, they did want better options. Their life made it kind of hard to take advantage of some healthier options, but they still wanted better retail on their side of town. But they also understood that sometimes the grocery stores that, that were leaving their neighborhoods or choosing not to build in their neighborhoods hmm. were doing so because they didn't see that it would be financially lucrative to, to build there or to stay there. So how did they, how did they say, well, we're going to make it, make it possible for the grocery stores to, to be there? Well, at the time, there were a number of local, state, and federal initiatives to subsidize 
healthy food options in neighborhoods like these. And there still are. There's the Healthy Food Financing Initiative, which is a, a, a national level policy initiative, originally budgeted for $400 million. It's never been fully funded. But statewide initiatives have done this. Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Fresh Food Financing Initiative. New Orleans had one. Uh, cities and states across the country were, were, were funneling public dollars to subsidize, to recruit these stores. But it's really difficult because the grocery business has operates on very thin margins. The industry underwent a, a major transformation in the 60s and 70s, kind of what I call the, the box storification of food retail. So this happened with, with the Walmarts and the Home Depots. The These large retailers operate on a completely different business model, whereby they sell a huge volume of products at very slim profit margins, and that can offset those slim margins, and they can make good profits in the end. Smaller stores, corner stores, mom and pop stores need to profit off of per item. And so they have higher prices and they can't compete with these bigger stores. So these bigger stores were starting to cannibalize smaller urban retail and had been doing so for decades. Uh, so when governments were coming in trying to subsidize this and trying to recruit them, they were really trying to, I mean, they were swimming upstream. It's really working against some very powerful market forces and economic dynamics. Still, there were funds available. Um, and so they were trying to push the leaders to prioritize this. And to some degree, they had some successes for some smaller mobile farmers markets, some community gardens and stuff like that. And although those efforts sound really good and they feel good and they are good, they're good people who do those programs. It's really difficult for those to actually change dietary nutritional behavior. Changing the way people eat because you have a new access to a community garden seems like it could work, but when you really put your mind to it, you realize that your eating habits are kind of ingrained in your daily life and your everyday realities in ways that a new garden plot around the corner can't really move the needle in significant ways. Well, I'm I'm I have the the perfect example for my own family. My father grew up as a child living pretty much in isolation. My my grandfather worked in the oil fields and so they mm -hmm. would send him out to the oil fields and they had housing for the families, but the families all lived really in the middle of nowhere yeah. and they didn't have lots of transportation or anything like that so that there was the kind of company store that was there and everything in it was in a can or it was dry like rice or something yeah and uh so to this well he's he's gone now but I mean, I remember growing up, my mother, who was Sicilian, everything had to be fresh. Everything had to be all these things. And she cooked it all up and everything. Yeah. My father would not eat fresh spinach to save his life. <laughs> he grew up on canned spinach. And that's all you ever ate was canned spinach. And he 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 tasted he tasted fresh spinach, but he never became a convert because yeah. He just didn't like it as much as he liked what he what grew up eating. Same thing with asparagus. He yeah. had canned asparagus. And even though to me it's all mushy and that's not very good, that's what he wanted. And mm -hmm. so I, I think some of it is just cultural. You know, whatever culture you have around you, the food culture that you grew up in is something that you're you're really stuck with you have to to work to get out of that so i yeah. can understand that well taste is tastes are very durable 
Um, we can acquire tastes. I mean, there's any, you ask any young person to take a sip of wine and they may not like it, but then talk to them when they're in their thirties and they might have a different, something else to say. Sure. So wine, coffee, these are bitter foods, bitter liquids that we can acquire a taste to. It takes a little work. It requires some access, but still to make wholesale changes overnight uh, are, are very difficult, especially considering uh, if you don't have easy access to it, you don't have the time to prepare it. Uh, if you live alone, uh, to cook for yourself uh, really doesn't make a whole lot of sense time and money-wise because you can save a lot of money by making a large, let's say, casserole dish or a lasagna or something like that. Uh, but then now you're staring down the meal, staring down the barrel of six days of leftovers of the same food. Yeah. Uh, and so larger families have the economy of scale that can enable healthy home cooking in ways that people living in smaller households do not. And for the past half century in the United States, household size has been shrinking consistently. One in seven American adults lives alone. And so under those circumstances, you know, a, a nice sort of feel good model where you can get an easy box of healthy vegetables, maybe subsidized and sold to you at a reduced rate on a weekly basis, it sounds great, but some people are just so busy, they got two jobs, they get home and now you give them a big, you know, head of cabbage and what are they going to do with it? You know, it's, it takes time uh, and it sort of cuts against the grain of all their other everyday obligations. Right. So what, what did you do then with the people and their, the interviews that you did with them and how did you how did you kind of move the process along? Right. So we would begin just by talking about, you know, basic stuff. What would you eat this week? And it, you'd think it'd be hard for people to recall what they ate six, seven days ago. But if you start this morning and then you think about, well, what did I have last night? And then maybe yesterday for lunch. And then before that, uh, and then the day before you had that doctor's appointment. And what did you eat when you got home? So we would create these sort of exhaustive food diaries. Uh, as well as a list of all the places where they shopped. And I took this information and I mapped what they ate and how they prepared it uh, against the stores where they were shopping. And the first thing I found was is that they actually bypassed a lot of their closest store options. So the USDA originally defined the food desert concept as areas with high rates of poverty without a grocery store within a one mile radius. This is for urban areas. For rural areas, it was 10 mile radius. So I tried to map it out on this sort of one mile plot of exactly where they lived. And I have some kind of fancy geographic software and I can calculate these distances pretty easily. But what I quickly learned is that over the course of their weeks, they had doctor's appointments. They had, they had to go meet with social service reps. They had to go pick up their kids from daycare. They had to go visit in on their mom. They had to go, um, you know, for other types of, uh, things they needed to buy, merchandise and whatnot. So they were crisscrossing the city for work, for worship, for education, for whatever reason. And they were crossing paths with lots of grocery stores that they were not shopping at. They had mm -hmm. developed a preference for a particular kind of store that sold particular kind of products. And they had come to really appreciate those products. And it became pretty stable of what they bought on a weekly and monthly and yearly basis. So that really started to clue me in is that if what they really wanted was a closer store that would save them a lot of time because they wouldn't have to travel. It would save them money, which is transportation costs, you know, gas, wear and tear on your car. 
but they didn't really intend to use those savings in time or money to buy different kinds of products. They wanted to buy the same things that they were buying before, but they just wanted to save some time and money doing so because their lives were generally complicated. And, you know, a lot of people I talked about, talked to were just barely hovering over the poverty line. They were really struggling to make ends meet. And so that that clued me into a new set of research that was finding that, you know, when they were able to recruit cities that were able to recruit stores to move in, they tracked the eating habits of people and they found that it wasn't really changing things. So then I thought, well, what would it take to really change what you're eating? And it turns out that when they did do a lot of home cooking was when on the weekends, when they had family come over, when they had friends come over. And then that's what kind of opened up the, the analysis of the economy of scale of home cooking. And mm -hmm. so really in the future, if if we want to make some definitive changes in the way people eat, yes, access is, is one thing. We need to bring the healthier food closer to them. Um, healthier food costs more per item, per calorie. Uh, so we not only need to subsidize and bring those prices down, we also need to increase the capacity of those customers to buy healthier foods, which cost more um, than less healthy foods. Um, and we also need to recreate some of the efficiencies of cooking in the past, which is large family meals. So uh, this is going to involve some type of food prep or or, or getting people in, in groups to be able to help to buy food at wholesale prices, to come together, to cut them and chop them and prep them with maple, maybe local nutritionists to help them develop recipes for that are a healthy twist on, on familiar favorites. Um, those are the things that it would take to really change the way people eat because it would, it would one, make it something that they could afford and then also account for the fact that they're really time starved and they don't really have a lot of time to put into what it takes to make really healthy meals at home. So what you've done is describe what won't work and <laughs> what um, what maybe isn't necessarily financially sustainable for whatever companies or whatever might who might open a grocery mm -hmm. store. So what did you come away with in terms of what would work mm -hmm. and in terms of the satisfaction of the neighborhood that mm -hmm. they were being treated properly. Right. So my general takeaway is that uh, we've spent a lot of time trying to recruit stores to come to areas to increase access. And those subsidies really haven't worked out as well. I would say invest in the customer first, okay? Build up their purchasing capacity so that they can ultimately buy these goods at market rates. Uh, if you invest in the, in the in these communities, the stores will come to them because the stores will see the opportunities to sell their products at a price where their businesses will be sustainable. The problems of these communities was that they were generally divested from. In the post-World War II period, we gave up on these inner city neighborhoods. We subsidized the suburbs and built big highways that allowed people to flow out of the city, which drained the customer base and make made these small mom and pop stores generally untenable. By reinvesting in these neighborhoods, so this is this is parks, this is streets, this is streetscapes, this is uh, transportation, this is daycare, this is job training. These are all the things that community, the types of things that community needs to allow people to get jobs, to get to those jobs, transportation, to keep those jobs, uh, childcare, so that when the kid gets sick, they can they can have a way or manage a way to be able to maintain those jobs and build up their own purchasing power so that 
the the retail amenities that they're looking for will come to them. So it's the story, the solution, it's difficult, but it's not really having to reinvent the wheel. It's to invest in ways that we did not in the 70s and 80s, when we largely focused a lot of these state and federal dollars on suburban development, which created a brand new form of retail, this big box storification of retail, um, and hollowed out these smaller urban neighborhoods. Now these neighborhoods uh, are facing other problems. They're at risk of gentrification. Retail is is not coming for the longtime residents. It's new high-end retail boutique shops. The Trader Joe's, the yoga shops, the cafes and stuff like that are, are coming in to speculate on these neighborhoods because real estate prices have hit rock bottom. Uh, so uh, to keep folks in place is to invest in those neighborhoods in ways that can can benefit um, the families that have been sort of sheltering in place for decades uh, so that they regain the purchasing power to become equal equal retail consumers alongside the rest of us. And when we do that, then the good, healthy retail will come to them. So is improving education part of that package so that the schools are better? Well, that would be, I mean... If you're, Investing in the workforce, mm-hmm. uh, so it's a you have adults who are ready to work, but they they need the tools they need to in order to get two jobs and to maintain those jobs. Uh, they're going to need some help. But once they do that, then they will be within their communities, and then they will be able to cash their paychecks, and then they'll be able to 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 shop, uh, and retailers will come to them. So uh, we're spending a lot of money subsidizing businesses to move into these neighborhoods where it's not really economically viable at the moment. I would say redirect some of those funds to invest in the customers to build up their purchasing power to make them more attractive so that the retailers will come to them on their own terms. So, I mean, this just reminds me of something that is a little bit off the subject, but I remember after Hurricane Katrina, Mm -hmm. and so we had just devastation. But one of the things that I noticed is that all of the fast food restaurants who were applying whatever formula they had, is this a good corner? Is that a good corner? Mm-hmm. Whatever, decided all their corners that had been flooded and mm-hmm. their shops that were no longer functioning mm-hmm. should not be reopened. Mm-hmm. And that allowed mom and pop places like po'boy shops <laughs> had been closed by the uh, all of the fast food places that came in to begin to get a toehold again and to mm-hmm. flourish. Yeah. And so by the time the fast food places started to say, okay, people are moving back to this neighborhood. And so we should reopen or find a new, a new corner or whatever they were dis- determining. Those po'boy shops had become the place where people had a loyalty, not only because the po'boy shops were good, but mm-hmm. also because they had come and taken the chance. And so people felt loyal to them. Yeah. Do you think that there's any element of that in what you're, what you discovered? Well, I do think, I mean, there, it's ironic, but there's a lot of money to be made, even in poor neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people there and, you know, people need to eat <laughs> every single day. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, there is a market for that. It is when corporate franchises or large large corporate retailers want to move in they are very powerful and they they can kind of move at will unless you can get a small store that can get a very loyal following 
because it's you think that Burger Kings and the McDonald's, I mean, they have extensive global supply chains. They can get their products and their ingredients at very market wholesale rates on a scale that a small mom and pop store cannot buy. They're 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 just general food costs are mm-hmm. going to be much higher. Yeah. So their profit, their their necess- the margins they need per item need to be much higher. They can do that. I mean, again, it's the lesson of the book is that when we the food desert concept came along, it kind of treated it treated people's diets like people were robots. They're constantly gravitating to the cheapest, closest thing that they can't possibly forego a fast food restaurant if it's a block away, if there's a health to get to a healthier option that's two blocks away, that they were just kind of trapped by this utilitarian distance determined diet, distance determines diet framework. And that's just not true. I mean, people make all sorts of choices that to outsiders seem illogical, but there's a logic to it if you talk to them. And that's the whole point of my research is to talk to people at their kitchen tables and understand what is the logic of your purchasing practices? Why are you foregoing this closer grocery store to go to one that's farther away? And and their reasons for it, actually, when you talk to them are pretty simple. Well, the one farther away is close to my mom. And so I pick her up and we shop together. That doesn't take a rocket scientist, but if you just look at it on a map and you try and chart it out, it seems impractical, but it's not. Um, So people make all sorts of decisions about their food practices that are knit into their everyday lives, their identity, their durable uh, tastes. Um, And so we need to craft solutions that can cater to them. And so we got to recognize that people don't necessarily want to change wholesale what they're eating at the moment. What they really want is to improve their communities. Mm -hmm. And better retail is one of the most visible ways to do it. If you drive into a new town that you've never been to and you show up at night and there's no one on the sidewalks, how do you know what kind of place it is? You look at the storefronts. Do the stores have bars on the windows? Uh, are they pawn shops and liquor stores? Or are they sort of high-end, you know, uh, nice cafes, organic shops and whatnot? Uh, the retail is the symbolic uh, indicator of the worth of the community to outsiders. And community residents just want the retail being sold in their neighborhoods to reflect the kinds of people that they believe that they are, that they they deserve better retail. That Just because they don't have as much money as the other side of town doesn't mean that they aren't deserving of the option of spending their dollars at places where they think are nice and want to shop. I think that the most, the most um, fun part of what you did was just to say, let's actually ask the people what, what they think and (laughs) not just look at it from the outside, as you say, and have everybody be an automaton who has to act in a certain way that you can just you can just look that they went from here to there therefore it means this because that's probably always wrong <laughs> <laughs> um I, 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 if you ever ask a child why they did something that to you always seems really nuts you <laughs> often understand well maybe maybe you know within what they know that made sense and yeah. so yeah, if you ask them then and that there's always a logic even if it's a crazy logic there um, <laughs> so why I, I guess my biggest question to you as a, as a, a sociologist is why is it that you were able to reach the point where you said why did you do this 
Mm -hmm. as opposed to just look at it as demographics and statistics and and whatever yeah well the so the the term food desert and the concept really kind of caught fire in the political landscape the most around 2010 2011 this was part of michelle obama's let's move campaign um there was a white house task force on childhood obesity and this concept became very popular and so we started to throw a lot of money at stores trying to to persuade them to move into these neighborhoods that they had once abandoned uh but in a, a three or four years later we started to see that those stores were starting to close and so this is really sad part this was kind of the most depressing part of my research is that um i would i would come upon these stores that would receive these funding um subsidies to move into these neighborhoods and <laughs> Uh, I would find the name of them and then I would Google that name and I'd find another newspaper article about four years later lamenting that this store had just closed. This, this actually happened in New Orleans um, with, a, with one particular store um, and it was, it was a sad story um, and I, I didn't enjoy that, but it really clued me into that the fixes weren't working. And so uh, if the solution, if the remedy wasn't working, then maybe we misdiagnosed the problem. And so that's when I decided to go back uh, to just what I do best is the kind of research I do is, is talking to people, trying to understand the logic of their everyday decisions, not uh, imposing upon them some type of super hyper rational order of things uh, and just try and figure out, you know, why is it that you do what you do? And you know, I wasn't, an, I'm not a nutritionist. I'm not a public health scholar. I wasn't invested in any kind of answers. I just wanted to talk to people and just figure out, you know, what is it, what, what would it take or what to get, you know, a healthy meal on the table? And I, and coming away from some conversations with people, I just, it was, what they ate was totally reasonable. It may not have been the healthiest thing, but if they bought stuff that they could go to the store and just heat up in the oven, it enabled them to have something quick. They didn't have to clean up after it. They could get a lot of variety that was important to them because their lives were tough. I mean, being broke in America is really hard. Uh, being poor is really expensive. <laughs> you have to pay. You can't pay, buy stuff at wholesale. Uh, you have to pay these extra surcharges at convenience outlets. Uh, you you can't make big shops so that you have to shop a whole lot. So you got to make multiple trips to the store. All these things make life really difficult. And then to ask those people to sacrifice big chunks of their time to prepare healthy meals from scratch from raw and whole foods was, was a big ask. And so folks who maybe not have had the greatest diets in the world, uh, we just need to recognize that they're, they're, they're ultimate problem solvers. They're super innovative. They've got solutions to all sorts of problems that would just completely vex and confuse anyone else. Um, how are you going to pick up your kid from daycare when you just got a flat tire? Like they they figured it out. Uh, and that deserves, deserves some respect. And with that respect, we got to understand that they they have a way that works for them. And we need to to craft solutions that fit their lives now as they are, not as what we think they should be. Yeah. Well, I think that's a place to end. So thank you so much for talking to us. We're talking with Ken Cobb about his book, um, Retail Inequality. And it is a really interesting, interesting read. I can um, attest to the fact that it's not full of jargon, which makes it really easier to read than those books that drag you down in the jargon world. Thank and uh, so thanks for being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a really great conversation.
Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, a part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Subscribe to this and other food and drink-related podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to keep up with me, Liz Williams, you can subscribe to my Substack newsletter, also called Tip of the Tongue, for more information about this podcast, recipes, and just what is going on. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.